Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm now going to invite my friend, my brother, Steve Heimler. Will you come on up and invite us into the beauty, the opportunity of the book of Jeremiah this morning? I, I will. Thank you. Um, maybe we should just have that Robinson video playing on loop in the background. In case I don't deliver on that, then at least there'll be some value for the people who showed. <laughs> because I can't put my toe in my mouth. I'm not that. I can't. I can't do it. All right. Good morning. Uh, our text for this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we've been doing, if you've been with us, you know this. We, we have been reading together as a congregation the entire Bible, and then we pause on Sunday morning to take some time to look at at least one of the passages that we read together this past week. And so that brings us to the second half of Jeremiah today. And last week, if you were here, um, we sat with Jeremiah and his anguish over the sin of God's people in Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. And we saw that the judgment that Jeremiah pronounced upon them actually came to bear when the Babylonians stormed Jerusalem, killed off many of the inhabitants, carried off the rest of them into exile, and burned the temple to the ground. But even in the midst of judgment, if you remember, Jeremiah pronounces hope. The Lord spoke through him, and he said, fear not, Despite the judgment that you have brought upon yourselves for the breaking of this covenant, I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans for welfare. They are plans for hope. They are plans for a future. And today, we're going to see exactly what that hope and future consist of, namely that the Lord will make for his people a new covenant which will replace the old one, the Sinai covenant. And as I've taught many times before, I won't go into, go into it too much here, but a covenant is an ancient contract between two parties, usually between a stronger party and a weaker party. This was done all the time in the ancient world, at least in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it's not too much to say that in the whole of the scriptures, God never relates to a single human being, let alone a nation, outside of the agreement of a covenant. Never. There is no relationship between God and human beings outside of a covenant. And so there are basically two different kinds of covenants in scripture. There's covenants of works and there are covenants of grace. Works and grace. And here's the thing. The whole of your life and my life, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not yet a Christian, you're just exploring these ideas for the first time, the whole of your life hangs on this question about what kind of covenant God has now established with humanity. Is it a covenant of works or is it a covenant of grace? Our whole life 
hangs on the answer to that question. And if you get this question wrong, then God and his ways and your relationship to him will be confusing at best, burdensome at worst. You, you may end up rejecting him, if not in word, but at least in heart. And it's here on the question of what kind of covenant God has made with people that I would wager that the majority of our culture has gotten their assessment of Christ and Christianity and the Bible all wrong. So all this to say, what I'm about to lay out for you here in Jeremiah is about as close to the heart of everything we believe as Christians. And if after hearing it, you are one of those people who decides you want to reject it, then at least take heart in knowing you're rejecting the real thing and not a parody of it. So that's what I have to offer. Now, in order to organize ourselves, let's look at Jeremiah's words under three headings. Number one, the problem of sin. Number two, the joy, excuse me, the deliverance into joy. And number three, the new covenant that solves the problem and brings about the deliverance. Problem of sin, deliverance into joy, and the new covenant that solves the problem and delivers into joy. Okay, it's number one, the problem of sin. So we know from last week, uh, if you were here for it, that the sins of God's people had led them into deep idolatry and therefore the fundamental fracture of the covenant that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. And in chapter 30 of Jeremiah, where we are in the story is that judgment has already come upon them. And here is God's assessment of that uh, judgment through Jeremiah, starting in chapter 30, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? So the effect of the judgment upon them is so exceedingly grim that it appears to have affected them like physically. Men are walking around through the burning rubble of the city with their hands on their stomachs, looking as though they're about to give birth. But just like last week, God looks at this situation and he speaks hope into the contortions of their grief in verse 7 of chapter 30. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time for dis of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So that's very good news. There will come a day when the pain and the judgment shall end and you shall be delivered. But there is a problem. And this problem has to be solved before the deliverance can occur. And we see the problem in verse 12, or starting in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Listen to this, listen. Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. Remember last week, Jeremiah characterizes idolatry as adultery, and he's saying, where are those lovers now that the judgment has come upon you? 
All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of a merciless enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. So, follow the logic here that was just laid out in Jeremiah. By your sin, you broke my covenant and thus earned judgment for yourself. And the only hope for a reversal of this judgment is that you no longer sin against me, says the Lord, and therefore break my covenant. But the Lord knows his people. If that's the requirement, then they have no hope. They are left without hope of restoration. They don't have access, the Lord says here in chapter 30, you don't have access to the medicine that will heal your wounds, your waywardness. There is no lawyer who will take up your cause and plead for you. So in that scenario, there actually is no hope. I mean, God could chasten them for 70 years as he promised to do, that we saw that last week, uh, for 70 years in exile in Babylon, bring them right back, and for a while maybe they're going to keep his law Uh, But if the narrative of the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us that the people of God will always slide right back into idolatry and the breaking of the covenant and find themselves right back under the weight of judgment. But the strange thing is that even though God pronounces them incurable, no medicine for you, he still continues to speak to them about their future. He still continues to hold out hope for them for a cure. And he paints the most beautiful picture of their deliverance. It's very strange. There's no medicine available to you, but let me tell you about the beauty of your future. So let's go to the second point, the deliverance into joy. Still in chapter 30 in verse 8 now. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. And then skip down to verse 18. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings and the city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them. They shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Think of what it would sound like to a people who have just experienced the devastating pain and grief and the, of the destruction of their city and exile into a land that is not their own to hear something like this. Thus saith the Lord, it shall not always be so. I will restore you and all shall be well. And then in Jeremiah 32, the Lord illustrates this, illustrates this promise of hope in a very strange manner. At this point in chapter 32, we're actually moving backwards in time What we've been considering in chapter 30 is after the fall of Jerusalem. Now we're going to go back towards when the Babylonians are actually there, um, when Jerusalem is being destroyed. And at this point, Jeremiah 
While all that is going on, Jeremiah has been imprisoned by the king of Judah because the king is actually tired of Jeremiah pronouncing doom all the time, like, hey, just want to let everybody know the Babylonians are going to come in. The king won't be able to defend you. They're going to destroy everything, cart you off into exile, judgment, etc., etc. King is tired of hearing it. And so he shuts Jeremiah up under the palace guard. So, so get this picture. There's Jeremiah locked in prison. And then outside of the walls, Babylonians are slaughtering people. They're burning the city. They're destroying the temple. They're fight, people are fighting for their lives in a fight that we know ultimately will fail. And it's precisely at that point that a kinsman of Jeremiah comes into the prison complex, approaches Jeremiah, and says something very strange. He says, hey, one of your relatives just died. And that means his land is up for purchase. Since you are his kinsman, would you like to buy it? <laughs> Wrong time, man. Wrong time. The city is burning. Jeremiah is in jail. And your question is, do I want to buy a piece of land that is probably devastated by now and laid waste? And the Lord says to Jeremiah, buy that land. So Jeremiah weighs out the money. It's worth reading. I'm not going to read it to you. It's worth reading in chapter 32 just how precise and detailed this account is. But he weighs out the money. He gets witnesses. He signs the contract. He buys the land. Now, what's going on here? Well, the Lord tells Jeremiah exactly what's going on in 32, chapter 32, 14 and 15. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So Jeremiah is charged by the Lord to invest in the hope of the deliverance of God's people, to purchase a plot of land that is right now ruined by the destruction of judgment, to let all God's people know that one day they shall return and their joy shall be full and no longer will judgment be upon them. And then skip down to verse 32, excuse me, 42 of uh, the same chapter. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. So the Lord holds out this hope of deliverance for his people. All their fortunes shall be restored. There shall be singing in their mouths and thanksgiving in their hearts, and their land shall be restored. But now the problem is even more stark. How will this happen? If the people are fundamentally incapable of upholding the law, the covenant that God gave to them at Sinai. Remember, the wound is incurable. 
There is no medicine available to them that will heal them so that they could enter into this glorious future that God is painting for them. Maybe they could just promise not to break the law anymore, but the Lord knows they are incapable of that. He's the one who, who announced that they were incurable. There is no cure within reach for their disease. And in that case, there is only one solution. And we see it back in chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord says this, for I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal. There is no medicine that they can grasp. There is no work that they can do to enter into that glorious future. But the Lord says, where you cannot, I will. Your wound is incurable, but I can cure it. And how will he do it? And that brings us to the third point, the new covenant. The Lord will bring about the healing of the incurable wounds of his people by entering into, by entering a new covenant with them. And so in Jeremiah 31 through 33, the Lord tells us three things about this new covenant. First, what it is. Second, what effect it will have. And then third, who will mediate this new covenant? So first, let's look at what is this new covenant. And for that, we have an explanation in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So first, notice the most obvious thing about this, namely that the Lord compares the new covenant with an old covenant. He says, this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with my people when I brought them out of Egypt. Here he's referring to the Mosaic covenant, uh, who, the one was, that was mediated by um, Moses. This was a covenant of works. In other words, the Lord laid out his law for them and said, do this and you will live. Do it not and you shall die. If you uphold my commandments, I have a land for you, flowing with milk and honey, a bright and glorious future. But if you do not, judgment will come upon you. And by the way, you know, the Lord isn't strong-arming them to agree to this. They, the people agreed to those terms. In fact, as the story goes, the people declared with one voice, all the words of this covenant we shall do. They wanted this arrangement. Now, the fact 
in Jeremiah, the, the fact that we're reading in Jeremiah about the destruction of these people at the hands of the Babylonians makes it clear that they did not keep their side of the agreement, and this punishment should not have been a surprise to them because the Lord was clear, if you break my covenant, you're going to be ejected from the land. He said that all the way back in Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy. So the first thing to notice is that this new covenant is not like that kind of covenant in which the law of God was written on tablets of stone and the people whose wills were bent on destruction, who have the incurable wound of sin and idolatry in their heart and who are responsible therefore for upholding the law in order to maintain the covenant relationship, it's not like that. So how is this covenant different? The Lord declares that in this new covenant, he will put his law within them. He will write it on their hearts. And when the law of God is written into the very fabric of their being, they will no longer obey God by compulsion, but by choice to their great delight. And so the result will be that all God's people shall know him and shall love him. And the basis for all of this comes to us in verse 34 right at the end there. For I will forgive their sin and I will remember their, excuse me, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The only medicine that can cure the wounds of God's people is forgiveness. They cannot work their way out of idolatry. They cannot heal their own wounds. The only option left is forgiveness. And in that way, we are dealing here not with a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace whose very foundation is the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so that's what the new covenant is. Now let's look at what effect, secondly, what effect it will have when the covenant comes to bear on God's people. And here we'll go to verse, excuse me, chapter 32, starting in verse 37. Behold, I will gather, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them to, from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. Like you can almost, <laughs> you can almost hear the laughter and the voice of God at the prospect of putting this covenant into place. No longer will they forsake me but I will rejoice in doing them good. Listen to that. Under the new covenant, the Lord will rejoice 
to do his people good. The very happiness of God will be inextricably bound up with doing good to his people. For him to do us good is a real ingredient in the happiness of God. Let that sit for a minute. And now finally, who will mediate this covenant? Because a covenant must always have a mediator. And for that, Jeremiah answers in chapter 33, starting in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, which is to say the righteous branch, shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So, this glorious new covenant will be enacted by a man whom God sends to his people and he will be identified as the branch of David whose name is the Lord, is our righteousness. But then also notice, not only will this covenant mediator be a king in the line of David, in verse 18 it says also that he will in some way be a Levitical priest. So who is this covenant mediator? Well, we can ask the wise men who hundreds of years later traveled hundreds of miles to Jerusalem with the following purpose from Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Or ask Mary who has conceived miraculously and is then given the interpretation of that conception by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you, can, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and over his kingdom there will be no end. He is the righteous branch of the house of David, the king who has come in to usher the people of God into their glorious future. But not only is he a king. If we go and ask the author of the letter to, he, to the Hebrews, who is this covenant mediator, he will tell you about the Levitical priesthood of this mediator. After quoting actually entirely from Jeremiah's new covenant text that we just read from chapter 30 a few minutes ago, uh, the author of the Hebrews quotes that whole thing in chapter 8, and then he goes on in chapter 9 to interpret to us this mediator. Listen to this, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, goats and bulls, excuse me, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it was through the blood of our king and priest, Jesus Christ, his atoning blood, whose name is the Lord, our righteousness, that our sins will be forgiven. And if our sins have been forgiven, then we are made eligible to partake in the new covenant and that glorious future that God has painted for his people now belongs to us by inheritance. By entering a covenant of grace with his people, God, by the finished work of Jesus Christ and through the indwelling spirit of God, has written the very law of God into our hearts. And because Jesus Christ is our righteousness and not ourselves, that means that our failure of righteousness can never threaten our standing in God's presence, can never threaten our standing or our inheritance. Because Christ is our righteousness and not ourselves, we find ourselves in the miraculous condition of being those to whom the Lord does good as a means to his own happiness. But Jesus Christ, our covenant mediator, has not only purchased for us the forgiveness of sins and a place in God's covenant. He has also purchased for us hope. Such a strange act for Jeremiah to buy a piece of land during the destruction of Judah. But in doing so, Jeremiah invested in the future hope of the restoration of Israel. And Jesus Christ did the exact same thing while he was three days and three nights in the grave. Except instead of purchasing a plot of land, he was purchasing the bodies and souls of his people. I have to imagine that if any grieving and weary Jew approached Jeremiah while he was weeping in the streets over the destruction of his land and said, Jeremiah, do you really think all the things you've said about the restoration of Israel, do you, do you really think that will occur? I have to imagine Jeremiah would have walked them out to the land that he purchased, dug up the deed that he had buried in the clay pot and said, yes. It is certain. And for all in our world who grieve and struggle under the weight and the burden of sin, the Lord Jesus now says to them, come see my people whom I have purchased. In them, the promise of Jeremiah shall come to pass. The promise comes in chapter 33. 
starting at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Well, we come to the table as we do each week. And when Jesus sat with his disciples the night before he was put on trial and killed, he had a meal with them. And he interpreted the elements of this meal in the following way. And when he took the bread, given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Brothers and sisters, we come to eat and drink the symbols of the new covenant, which was sealed by Christ's blood. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that we share every inclination, every desire, every wayward, um, uh, every wayward uh, thought that the Israelites did. And we would, if it weren't for your grace, be led eternally to judgment and destruction. But Father, thank you. Thank you for the good graces of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for awakening a belief in us that we have nothing to offer, but you have everything to offer us. So, Father, I pray that as we eat and as we drink, <clears throat> that you would awaken us to the reality that in the new covenant, you delight in doing us good. It is a, it's a belief that's almost too hard for us to bear, but grant us the humility which can bear it. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So eat and drink, and let this act remind you that God rejoices over you to do you good.